Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. And joining us now is retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, the former chief of U.S. Army Aviation, the commander, former commander of the 101st Airborne Division, who also commanded the 160th Special Operations Regiment, one of the world's uh, finest Army aviation units. He is now the executive vice president for strategic pursuits at Bell, who, of course, sponsors uh, our uh, podcast. Sir, honor and pleasure having you back on the program. Thanks for joining us. Margo, thanks for having me back on the show. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, you're joining us in your guise as a uh, legendary uh, former Army aviator and, and, and uh, highly experienced soldier. The world is debating what are the lessons learned. Uh, from uh, Russia's war on Ukraine about the utility of tanks, armored vehicles, long-range strike, you know, as well as unmanned systems and the future of Army aviation, and specifically the vulnerability of attack helicopters at the hands of Stingers and Star Streaks, uh, and indeed the vulnerability of uh, uh, combat vehicles to uh, weapons like Javelin or or Enlaw. Um, you're somebody who's got an enormous amount of experience in this game. Um, from your standpoint, what are the broad lessons of the war? Uh, and then I want to break it down into a little bit of the of the nuanced uh, aviation lessons from your standpoint, because Wally Rugen, uh, the uh, Major General Wally Rugen, the future vertical lift uh, boss, joined us and said, look, lessons learned take time. Uh, and oh, by the way, the United States Army doesn't fight anything like the Russians are fighting. Right. So all of those armchair quarterbacks who are drawing all kinds of lessons might not be drawing the right lessons. Well, you know, Vago, I think uh, there are a couple of really strategic uh, lessons that are already apparent that uh, we should have already, I think, uh, taken to heart. Uh, The first and foremost one, I think, is is that it's very easy to overestimate a potential competitor, uh, call it a near peer or a peer competitor. And I think that's what uh, most of the Western world did as far as the Russian army. Uh, We overestimated their leadership, their training, their equipping. Um, and their tactics. Uh, on the opposite side of it, it's also easy strategically to underestimate a potential uh, you know, ally. And we did that so with the uh, Ukrainians. I think uh, the common consensus, uh, even among my peers, was is that the Ukrainians would eventually fold and have to sue for peace uh, fairly rapidly. And in fact, uh, you know, we were wrong on both of those. The other key thing that's strategic is, is that, and I'm going to you know, misquote somebody that's much more famous than I, you know, uh, you know, real professionals actually talk about logistics. So all the other folks talk about, uh, you know, strategy and grand strategy and tactics on the battlefield. But if you don't have logistics, you do not have an army that can fight in combat. Uh, and uh, and we've uh, certainly seen that even with uh, units that are nearby uh, the Russian uh, border. Um, from an aviation perspective, um, sir, what are the things that the, the nuanced things uh, that you're seeing very, very high casualty rates? Uh, I, I mean, unfortunately, on both sides, but at the hands uh, of Ukrainian forces or Russian army aviation has taken a bit of a beating uh, and thereby in the minds of some raise questions about the utility of army aviation. Why aren't we doing more of this, for example, through loitering munitions or, or from unmanned platforms? From the perspective of an experienced uh, United States Army aviator, what what are the Russians doing that's different from how it is we would do it? And what does that tell us about what the future of Army aviation is, whether for mobility or for strike? 
on, on the man side of the equation, right? Man platforms. Yeah. Well, I'll go at this point uh, in the, you know, the development of uh, army aviation. It's stunning to watch the Russian army basically operate in, in daylight uh, in very, very large uh, organizations uh, operating fairly close to each other without uh, using, you know, one, uh, the night, uh, two, using uh, any kind of capability to uh, screen, to recon, recon, to conduct reconnaissance in front of their formations, um, and then blissfully flying into what I would call a stinger ambush. Uh, that's not the way that uh, the United States Army has operated for the last 20 years. And, uh, and most Western armies don't operate that way. So that's the first and foremost thing. You know, daylight versus nighttime operations is stunningly uh, different. The other thing of it is, is that uh, as we're watching, you know, these future vertical lift programs develop for the United States uh, Army and uh, potentially allies down the road, is, is the use of uh, forward reconnaissance through man-on-man teaming using uh, uh, air-launched effects. Uh, the impact of that is going to be quite significant uh, in coming battles uh, involving the United States and our allies operating with the future vertical lift capabilities. And it's one that I think that you can clearly see would be needed uh, right now uh, uh, on that uh, Ukrainian battlefield. And I want to point out to the audience that when you were director of Army Aviation, you were working hard in terms of that manned, unmanned teaming, uh, integrating, for example, Gray Eagle into uh, the Army's intellectual order of battle on a, a sort of a large, uh, long range, uh, heavy payload uh, unmanned system as a to augment uh, uh, rotary wing aviation. From, from your standpoint, and I don't want you to get to speak uh, for General Rugen, obviously at Futures Command, given that you're not a disinterested party, right? Bell is competing against Sikorsky and Boeing as well as Sikorsky alone in both the future long range assault aircraft and the future uh, armed reconnaissance aircraft competitions. Um, you know, how, how do you think these lessons will be A, learned, right? The process the Army will learn, uh, use to learn these lessons. But then also, what do you think will be some of the lessons that get applied? Because the Army is um, really an ever learning and, and actually rapidly learning organization when it comes to ongoing conflicts and, uh, and adjust accordingly or, or not, right? I mean, it goes through, you go through a discipline process. Talk to the audience a little bit about what that discipline process is and what do you think some of the things that will uh, shape these programs? Obviously, they're in down-select now, right? But as you look downstream, what do you think some impacts might be on the program? Well, programs. I think, there's, yeah, Vago, I think uh, first and foremost, and again, this is from my individual perspective, I mean, what you're seeing is a confirmation uh, that you must own the night, uh, be able to train repetitively uh, in, in nighttime operations in complex environments, um, including urban environments. And so I think that's a confirmation there. I think there's also a confirmation of uh, the air launch effects that I previously talked about, uh, not only for reconnaissance well ahead of a manned aircraft, but also for other kinds of capabilities. The reason why they call it air launched effects is because there's a multiple um, uses uh, for these, uh, you know, unmanned systems that are going moving out in front, including um, potentially defeating or at least uh, uh, keeping radar systems and uh, uh, jamming as well as location and potentially other things of that nature. So it's confirmation of, I would say, on the night as well as the, this future air launched effects that's actually being done now during problem, uh, project convergence through, uh, you know, pseudo um, launch devices and, and also edge project edge uh, that's happening on a Dugway proving ground or just occurred this year out in Utah. So confirmation of those two things. I think what you're going to see though is, is, uh, 
uh, as time goes on, there'll be further refinement and understanding of how you have to use tactics. Again, usually at night, um, you know, bounding over a watch is an old uh, tactic that we use ever since I've been in the 6th Cavalry uh, Air Combat Brigade back in the early 80s. Um, to ensure that uh, you didn't place, you know, a large formation right into an ambush of any nature. These days, it would be a stinger uh, ambush, um, you know, by, uh, by a potential competitor or, you know, another surface-to-air missile. You're going to see tactics change just as you're seeing a confirmation of, you know, on the night and, uh, and uh, ALE. I, I don't want to go and, you know, that would be General Francis and his whole team down at Fort right. Rucker. But and I already know that they are uh, bringing back, uh, you know, in my early days, we flew nap of the earth. And if you got more than 10 or 15 feet off of uh, the trees, uh, you know, uh, your pilot, your co-pilot or your instructor pilot was telling you to get back into the trees. I think you're going to see that. How do you use low level tactics at very high speed, long range to actually converge onto a target or a series of targets? And uh uh, there's a lot of development being done right now as we speak. A lot of it doing, you know, going through General Rugen's uh, CFT. And uh, I think he could probably talk to some of the things that uh, I think he's seen in Ukraine and how it might apply to a future battlefield that the U.S. would be involved in. And uh, what's the role of loitering munitions uh, in that um, construct, right? I mean, we, we, you know, we, we have a tendency of thinking about manned platforms, unmanned platforms, but the loitering is is relatively new. And, you know, you could argue, is, is that a is that an aerial platform? Yes. Is it something that's launched by a forward edge? How, how are we thinking about how we would use these uh, systems uh, that are proving very effective in Ukraine and were absolutely devastating in the uh, Azerbaijan-Armenia war? Yeah, I think what you're going to see is, is that uh, there'll be increased use uh, across the board. So in other words, it uh, won't no, necessarily be a peer competitor that's going to try to use these kinds of capabilities. And so we will have to uh, obviously try to think, you know, as a way to defeat those kinds of uh, things on the battlefield from the U.S. perspective. Turning that array around, we've actually, as you've already noted, I mean, we use loitering munitions in half for uh, several years, uh, as have well, others. I think uh, what you're going to see is, is a pretty stringent, uh, you know, look at how do you use these in a disciplined way? How do you make sure that you don't attack the wrong targets, i.e. civilians, which is what the Russians happen to be doing, not necessarily with loitering munitions, but with missiles, artillery, and rockets, uh, to make sure that you uh, do comply with the laws of land warfare, as well as be able to use the capability that these systems are providing. So again, it's, uh, it's going to be, you know, tactics, some policy issues, I think, but uh, the U.S. Army and, and our other services within the US, United States are, are a long ways down the road of uh, how to incorporate these systems in a uh, uh, very, very complex fight. Um, let me uh, ask you one last uh, question, and it's about um, you know, the outlook for both uh, the FLARA program, uh, the FARA program. Um, we are looking at a downselect decision. I think has been pushed back a little bit. Uh, there has been uh, some discussion on our program uh, as well uh, about whether the Army is changing tack and is going to take a high-low mix, that the FLARA aircraft will be the high of that mix, and that Blackhawks will constitute the vast majority and the bulk of the force. There were a lot of folks who did think that that was going to be the case uh, either way. Uh, and, and this perception that the FARA 
uh, program now becomes OBE and will not last uh, 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 General McConville's tenure in office, that after he retires, that program will be retired. I think General McConville deserves an enormous amount of credit, uh, not for being an aviator, pushing an aviator program, but pushing the FAR program as a very elegant way to recapitalize the manned combat aviation part of the Army uh, and try to do it in an economic fashion, given you know the, the Apache is a very good airplane, but as, as he said, it is expensive. It's particularly expensive in that mission and continues to struggle from availability rates. From your standpoint, what's the outlook for both of these programs that are at the core of Army aviation modernization? Yeah, so let's uh, talk start off with the long range assault and I will say just follow the money. Uh, so, you know, the, the most recent president's budget, uh, I think you see uh, quite fulsome, um, uh, you know, uh, support for the long range assault and everything in the posture hearings that we've heard over the last two months from Secretary of the Army, as well as General McConville, have been extremely supportive of the long range assault, as well as the attack reconnaissance. Again, follow the money, Vago. I, I think that there's plenty of money there. As you've noted, uh, the down select should happen somewhere in the last quarter of uh, this fiscal year, so between July and September. Um, and I, I think that what you're, you're really seeing is a very strong level of support and understanding on the Hill, as well as within think tanks, thought leaders like yourself, um, and uh, all the other services are deeply interested. And I must say, Vago, that we've had an extraordinary amount of interest here within my company uh, from our allies. Uh, we've hosted uh, 21 embassies here at the Experience Center in Crystal City. In many cases, uh, they've asked to come see uh, about this new contraption called the uh, you know, feature long-range assault aircraft. Uh, so I'm, I'm quite uh, you know, pleased with, the, I think, where you're seeing as we go forward on long-range assault. Um, I, I think also what you'll say, and I, I, again, I, the incredible importance, we're seeing it not only in the Ukraine, but uh, also elsewhere, just as you know, you're hearing posture hearings from uh, AFRICOM as well as Indo-Pacific, Speed and range equals reach, which is incredibly important. And, uh, and so I think you're going to continue to see that being pounded by, you know, the chief of staff of the Army. I heard him recently say speed, speed, speed when he was talking about future vertical lift. Uh, it's really extraordinarily important in all those areas, including the, uh, the uh, European theater, now that you have Eastern Europe, uh, as well as uh, and all the way from the Baltics to the Balkans and everywhere in between. Let's go to the attack reconnaissance aircraft. You know, again, what I would say is, is look to next year's um, presidential bu budget and the out years to see um, what level of support is actually in there for the attack reconnaissance. Um, I personally believe that there is a very significant role uh, on the battlefield against a peer and near peer competitor for a armed reconnaissance aircraft called a light attack that can use everybody else's ammunition, meaning long range fires, for example, um, or aerial platforms well above this aircraft operating far to the rear. I think there's a huge role for that. And I think you're seeing some of that in the Ukraine, as I've already talked to. You know, the idea of being able to penetrate and disintegrate uh, on the battlefield uh, really needs to be led by an attack reconnaissance type of an aircraft that can move to contact uh, in, in, you know, uh, using air launched effects and then be able to converge uh, weaponry and, and the kill chain on appropriate targets 
so that in fact the long range assault can actually do what wins battles, which is to place troops on a terrain uh, area or to dominate a enemy uh, in a physical way or to be able to uh, assist a population. So that's a long-winded uh, response, but uh, I would say uh, let's wait another year on attack reconnaissance. I wouldn't call its demise too early. On the long-range assault, I think it's uh, here to go for uh, the future. Let me also talk about, you did mention, you know, a mix. You know, I, I came in the Army, uh, Valgo, when we were uh, introducing the Black Hawk, and we long had in units uh, Hueys operating in uh, right alongside uh, Black Hawks. It proved to be a challenge because they weren't as fast and couldn't carry as much, but we did it for 20 years. You, I know for a fact that uh, it will be 20 to 30 years where you'll see long-range assault aircraft operating well to the forward portion, but you will see Blackhawks in our Army for that length of period of time. You, you know, the pure physics of uh, uh, replacing, you know, 2,135 Blackhawks takes a very long time and a whole lot of money. Um, will it be, you know, the final solution like that will be a mix, high-low mix? I don't know. But I do know that no matter what, uh, we've been planning for a long time that uh, we would have a high-low mix for decades. Well, uh, indeed, because when the U.S. Army was actually transitioning to the Black Hawk, uh, it was still buying the last sort of buys of, of the Huey. I think even early in your career, you experienced that. I did. And I had uh, many multiple opportunities to fly both. Uh, and uh, so what a way to start a career, right, Vaga? Yeah, exactly. Hey, the more flight time you get, uh, the better off, the better off you are. And and just briefly before we go, sir, um, you uh, uh, guys decommissioned uh, the airplane about a year ago, uh, dismantled it in order to just sort of learn lessons. Um, you know, what have you guys uh, learned about uh, an airplane that, uh, you know, you guys point out is not a prototype, was a demonstrator. It's actually a production article that happened to be flying around. Uh, you guys put about uh, 215 hours on it. Uh, what did you guys find at the end of uh, that when you dismantled it? Yeah, so we flew it for uh, over three years, Vago, and at the end of it, we wanted to be darn sure that uh, we understood exactly what was uh, inside that aircraft. Uh, we were actually uh, pleasantly surprised that during those three years of flight, 215 hours, that uh, we did not have to replace drivetrain components, gearboxes, and things of that nature. And so we wanted to see just what was happening inside there that you couldn't do through you know, non-intrusive types of uh, testing. So we decommissioned it. Um, and uh, when we did so, we were extraordinarily happy to see that uh, the wear and tear on the drivetrain uh, was very light. In other words, uh, the engineering that had gone into and the casting and the, the manufacturability of these parts and pieces, um, it, it proved to be uh, you know, uh, very sound. And so uh, we're very pleasantly surprised very happy that we were able to decommission this aircraft prior to uh, the end of our, you know, having to get our proposal in, because now we know that we can maintain these aircraft uh, uh, in a very supportable and sustainable way uh, well into the future. And what do you do with all those uh, gearboxes and rotor blades? <laughs> yeah, we so, uh, you know, for the audience, we built the extra gearboxes and uh, rotor blades thinking that we would have to replace them during the test flight, during the 215 hours of flight test. We did not. So now we have them on uh, static display at our manufacturing technology center uh, where we are uh, you know, using the latest and uh, uh, manufacturing to ensure that uh, we can do this well into the future in a very affordable way. Uh, and just out of uh, for as a point of reference, right, how does that performance compare to uh, the uh, rotary wing uh, aircraft that are in the Army inventory now? 
You know, I mean, helicopters, I mean, you know, someone else smarter than I said that, you know, a helicopter really doesn't want to fly. You have to force it to fly. It's got so many moving parts and they're always under constant stress. So when you want to achieve high speed, you're stressing those parts, right? Whereas a tilt rotor, basically, you know, during the vertical portion of it, yes, it's a helicopter. But as soon as it achieves, uh, uh, you know, vertical flight uh, and wants to then move forward at high speed, it converts on over to essentially an uh, airplane. And the wear and tear on the parts becomes extraordinarily less. And that's, hence, that's why you see V-22s flying 4,000 miles across the Pacific, um, you know, uh, and then being able to do a mission right after they land. Uh, you know, the aircraft becomes a turboprop for a lengthy period of a, a mission and then converts back into one of the finest helicopters in the world for uh, vertical elements. Roughly how often, for example, on a conventional helicopter, do you have to change the blades, do the transmission work, right? It, I, I mean, I know this is not a one for one comparison, but just sort of curious, uh, you know, and, and as I'm sure some in the audience are, how do these two compare? Uh, sort of like for like, understanding that you're also getting a lot more performance, a lot more range out of uh, out of the airplane. Yeah, so our projections are that, you know, that obviously that uh, being in operating in a turboprop mode during high speed uh, portions of uh, the mission will uh, radically reduce the need to uh, change out uh, uh, drivetrain components, uh, dynamic components, uh, especially those that are kind of rotating against each other. Uh, over a period of time. You know, I really don't uh, want to get into the data because uh, I think that uh, it will be very clear that uh, the tilt rotor uh, is a much more affordable and sustainable option. Uh, sir, thanks very much. Always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks for being so generous with your time. Really appreciate it. And uh, a break a leg on a, a family uh, perspective as well as at work. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Vago. Thanks for having me.